Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. And welcome to the Jump Ship edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon Fusion. I'm joined by Slate Moneybox columnist Jordan Weisman. Hello, lovely listeners. And also a woman with some news, Ms. Kathy O'Neill. Hi. Hi. That The author of Weapons of Math Destruction. Um... We are going to be talking about her news later on in the show. You're going to want to hear that. We are also going to be talking about, well, I mean, Kathy, this is what you always want to talk about, yeah, right? It's banks yeah. behaving badly oh and the God. evil things they do. Terrible. So we're going to talk about that. But first, we are going to talk about the wonderful world of Donald Trump's executive orders and other signs of madness. Um, <laughs> Don, um, Jordan, what? Remind us what TPP is. Yes. So TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you may recall it was that giant controversial trade deal involving, you know, 12 different nations, including the United States, Canada, Mexico, Japan, Vietnam, uh, so on and so forth, about 40, covering 40 percent of the world's GDP. Barack Obama negotiated and it became massively controversial. So TPP was going to be the sort of Asia Pacific version of NAFTA. Sort. Yeah. I mean, it was and it was going to include the NAFTA nations. It was going to be except except it was not going to include China. No, it was not going to include China. And then we had a presidential election where both candidates said they were opposed to it. Exactly. And then as was promised by both candidates once one of them was elected the one who got elected said i'm not going to do this yes and so is this news interesting important or is it just entirely expected well i think so it is important i mean the news itself is as expected no one thought donald trump was going to turn around and sign tpp uh he had that was abundantly clear um you know i should say that you know, he is basically withdrawing as a signatory. Trade deals like this don't ever really die. They, you know, they can get put on ice. There is nothing stopping in like 10 years from now, another president coming and reviving TPP. But for now, it's it's basically, it, it is, it's in a coma. It's it's done for now. Um, why that there, there are, I think there are kind of 
philosophical reasons there it's interesting but the news itself is just sort of what we all saw coming and so i'm actually really not sad that tpb yeah. is gone there were a lot of problems with tpb which we talked about yeah um in particular the the amount of like a uh, power that went to these sort of these bodies these uh yeah. what are they called isds and thank you yeah, yes. international arbitration but one like of that. the things that obama kept on saying yeah um was that the reason we're taking getting tpp even though it's imperfect yeah was that Basically, because China's not in it. Yeah. And now that we we actually said, like, as Trump said, like, screw it, really not doing this. Yeah. It does seem like China has taken on a different role. Well, so China has its own replacement yeah. lined up, and it's called... Well, it's, the, the re, it's, it's the regional comprehensive... <laughs> yeah, it's the regional comprehensive trade agreement. And this is this is something I've talked to some people about, and there, there are two minds, right? They're, they're the, the people who didn't like TPP. Um, people like public citizen or groups like public citizen, Lori Wallach over there, who was sort of like the original anti-trade crusader, who will say, yes, China is going to bring people into this other trade deal. But this other trade deal is kind of bullshit. It's it's a very minor thing. It's lowering some tariffs. It's not fundamentally restructuring anyone's economy the way TPP would have. It's not something where China is really rewriting the rules of the global economy, like um, TPP's advocates are saying. OK, and, so I'm yeah. going to jump in here and say yeah. you're really overselling TPP if you think it was going to rewrite the rules of the global economy or fundamentally change anything. I feel that what we have with where we've reached in terms of the panoply, to use a local term, <laughs> of um, bilateral trade agreements along with the WTO rules which govern everything as l along with the European Union and all of that kind of stuff and NAFTA and Mercosur is that we have a world which, to all intents and purposes, kind of has free trade already. And all of these agreements are twiddling around with the services industry and a little bit of intellectual property here and there and trying to add a bit and trying to add a piece and trying to sort of change a few things at the margin. But there's literally no trade deal which is going to rewrite the rules well, of anything. Okay, so it's not about... I think it's beyond twiddling. I, I, I think when you talk about things like ISDS and further, which is, you know, further solidifying this, this extra, you know, supranational judicial procedure, that, that's actually a big deal as that creeps out. I think when you talk about the intellectual property rules and what governs pharmaceuticals those or biologics, th those are a big deal. I think that, um, you know, expanding intellectual property rights abroad in general are, are actually, you know, again, it's not about tariffs per se, but these non-tariff rules really do change the way business works. Well, if we're going to talk about changing the rules, like what do we think Trump is actually? Well, so this is, and so this, this is, is, I want to get. Yeah, yeah, and this is actually the meat of where we need to talk about, yeah. which is the big elephant in the room. And let's just name it. NAFTA yeah. is the, you know, the, the shining trade deal on a hill signed by Bill Clinton, which kind of really did change the entire North American economy and created these supply chains which stretch all the way from Canada to, to Mexico. Um, and I will just say that the whole concept of Mexican imports and Mexican exports, it has, has kind of been rendered incoherent by NAFTA because now everyone just makes everything everywhere. And almost anything you buy in the United States will have something in it, which was, you know, in Mexico yeah. at some point. Um, and yet, in the face of this clearly, you know, um, facts on the ground, single trade area that we've had for a long time now, Donald Trump is talking about throwing up tariffs and taxing ma um, Mexican imports and tearing up NAFTA. And that just, that's something which 
Hillary Clinton would never have done. And that's kind of scary. No? Yeah, I mean, I, I talked to I was talking to a, a union guy who does trade for like a very large American labor union. And he has to remain anonymous, sadly. But I asked him, I was like, can, you know, you guys have had problems with NAFTA. You know, is it a good thing? If it goes away, if Donald Trump actually just withdrew, would you be happy about it? And his response is, I can't even imagine that world. Like, he, he can't, he couldn't even tell me if he'd be happy or sad because it's so inconceivable how you would unravel um, this, this giant, uh, just this a deal that governs every part of the supply chain in is North America. even... This is a little bit like Brexit, right? Like yeah. you can say that you want to do it, but actually doing it is well, impossible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, like you're saying, Felix, one car, when you make it, the supply chain just goes back and forth over the border in Texas, for, into the Midwest, back in, in, into Mexico, back and forth. And so, and Canada. Don't forget Canada. Yeah, and Canada. And so there's just you, – you have these – extremely co complicated supply chains that cross borders freely right now and you would just have to remake and and all you would just have to remake how you manage all of that it's it's really just hard to wrap your mind about or if you want to be really concrete as i understand it like the yeah. trucking that goes from mexico yeah. into texas and all through the country is like what what's the plan there do we like stop every truck at the border well that's going to be a wall yeah yeah <laughs> it's a, but i mean it just would disrupt our economy and one of the more depressing things that I've seen is that the Canadians, um, rather than standing up and full-throatedly supporting NAFTA, which has been extremely good for the Canadian economy, which exports, you know, obviously the U.S. and NAFTA is its number one trading partner. Um, instead of doing that, they've kind of rolled over already and they said, oh, well, if you want to kick out the Mexicans, then I suppose we'd better just start talking about a bilateral trade deal just between the US and Canada because okay and that I just I'm I'm super depressed but I don't that does seem like the plan like Trump wants to one on one negotiate well, so, with every single other country right and, and Isn't this, that his plan yes it is and so this is this is interesting I've, uh, another thing I've been kind of talking to trade experts about this idea of Donald Trump likes the idea of bilateral trade negotiations he thinks these multilateral deals these regional deals are bad for the US and his reasoning is that when you have these big kind of TPP like deals a bunch of small countries can kind of gang up on the U.S. and say, "Okay, well, we're not going. We're we're going to all join together and say we're not going to agree to your terms." And so that gives us less leverage. So if the U.S. is just sitting across the table from New Zealand, theoretically, we're going to have more leverage with them. He so, adds, by the way, yeah. this is something which I've heard from the Trump administration quite explicitly that one of the reasons they hated TPP is because it's a trade agreement among a bunch of countries. And the same rules apply to every country. Yeah. And the and what the American slash Trump team is saying is, well, we're exceptional. We are the US of A. We are the global hegemon. We should get better terms than everybody else. Yeah, which is... I mean, that's exactly yeah. in line with Trump's yeah. uh, like personality. I mean, he's like, he he's a bully and he's like, if I'm, it, you know... I want to be able to bully. Yeah. Right. And I can because I'm the United States and it is you know, power. And like there are two there are two big reasons why that doesn't really make a ton of sense as a trade strategy. The number the, the first reason is just like for businesses, like a bunch of bilateral trade deals are really complicated to navigate. If you have to like figure out different rules for every single fucking country you're exporting to, right, right. it's just a pain in the ass. Right. Okay. That's number it's one. It's complicated. Yeah. Like it's it just you don't want to deal with that. But number two, it actually it's probably just going to lead to less fewer trade deals. And here's why. You get a bunch of countries, all of which bring different things to the table. And even though a deal between any one, like two countries might not make sense, right? 
a deal between the group does make sense because they are all like compensating mm-hmm. factors. Mm-hmm. So the way it's sort of like a three way trade in the NBA, right? Yeah, yeah. That's like way. So like if so if you restrict trades to be two way, there's actually yeah. fewer yeah, opportunities. So, so like one example is like. You know, let's say, new, again, going back to TPP, right? Let's say, uh, you know, New Zealand wants to get access to the U.S. dairy market, right? Um, I doubt that, by the but, way. New well, Zealand, does, doesn't New Zealand have a bunch of Yeah, cows? it's got a bunch. No, it's got a lot of dairy. So, like, they, they have a lot of dairy. So, they want to send. Go to they the, want to send their. Yeah, okay. They want to get access to the U.S. dairy market. That's yeah. going to piss off American farmers, right? But the compensation is, well, if you have Canada in the deal and they have to open their dairy market, right now, American farmers don't have much access to Canada, even under NAFTA. So American farmers get that kind of compensation. And so a two-way deal between New Zealand and America might not have worked, but a three-way deal does. Mm. And so that's why you have these multilateral trade deals. It becomes, it makes, there's something for everybody. So in the end, you're not going to get a situation where you, when you sit down one-on-one, you're less likely to come to an agreement in a lot of ways. But that's, yeah, I mean, there's this weird nostalgia in the Trump administration for a halcyon bygone era where most commerce in the United States was just domestic. And I think that's exactly yeah. what you're what you're talking about is that in the app, if you're going to tear up trade deals, you are just going to become a much more insular and less global country. And that's quite explicitly what Trump was campaigning on. He's like, I want to go back to the days when we could just, you know, make our steel ourselves. And then, for instance, he he signed an, an executive order saying, if we're going to be building oil pipelines, they need to be built with American, American steel, steel, which is totally illegal under WTO <laughs> rules. Um, but, you know, he's Donald Trump, so he doesn't care about yeah, that. And he's going to sign these orders anyway. The good news about the executive orders, as I've been explained to by a lot of law professors recently, is that most of them are illegal and won't happen. So yeah. we can end on a positive note. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Kathy O'Neill. Yes. I hear that banks have been behaving badly again. Uh, You know... Here's the thing. This week, the CFPB announced a settlement with Citigroup. And I should say that the CFPB is doing a lot of stuff right now, trying to get... Which is kind of amazing, right? The CFPB, which was like the number one enemy of every single Republican candidate, including Donald Trump, is going out there slapping fines left, right, and center, and no one seems to be stopping them. Well, I think they're settling as quickly as possible before they're defunded, is what I think. Is yes. That, yeah. The, yeah, I should say that the, C, the CFPB, for those who, who aren't total wonks like me, myself, is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and is part of Dodd-Frank. And Liz Warren started it, but then she didn't get to run it. So that's why she's a senator. Anyway, they're like the do-gooders trying to protect consumers. Yeah, And like, and the reason this is actually a very personal story to me is that when I started in, in Occupy in 2011, I would get, because I, there were a couple like, you know, 
news articles about me and my group, I would get emails from people saying, I'm trying to renegotiate my mortgage, um, but they keep on telling me that they've lost my paperwork. But I've sent them my paperwork 17 times, and they're just giving me the runaround. And what can I do? And I was like, well, I'm not, a, I don't know what you can do. Like, I feel sorry for you, but I got, I can't tell you how many emails I got about this. Anyway, the CFPB finally nailed Citigroup. Um, on doing exactly this, the, the what they call the runaround for people who are trying to renegotiate their mortgages back during the and financial crisis. And this is crisis. this is the City Financial um, arm of Citigroup, which is basically the subprime mortgage bit um, and the bit which everyone was complaining about during the crisis and during Occupy and that kind of thing. Um, but it's not just the subprimes. It's also Wells Fargo in Beverly Hills. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, there's another story which was broke by broken by ProPublica this week about how Wells Fargo has been doing basically the same idea, same idea of like losing people's paperwork, quote unquote, um, and charging um, people in Beverly Hills and Los Angeles area more generally um, for delays that they're they're responsible yeah. for. Yeah, like, and those are like $1,500 charges. Uh, see, so, this one was personal for me. Because, oh, yeah? Well, so, because you live recent, in Beverly Hills? No, because I recently <laughs> had to go through the whole process of taking out a mortgage. And so when you have a mortgage, you have a certain date where you have to finish everything by to get your the more the interest rate they promise you or you get you get you have to pay more money to keep it locked in and it's very 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 stressful it and is. you're trying to get all that done and essentially what Wells Fargo was doing was they had these horribly understaffed offices in, right. in uh in California that they could not do all the paperwork and so inevitably the deadlines were missed but because of Wells Fargo so instead of saying oh our bad we'll you know extend we'll pay to extend your mortgage rate they found ways to blame it on the customer by handing them more paperwork that wasn't actually necessary, but that would cause them to miss the deadline. Yeah. And therefore, they could slap them with it. And in fact, what yeah. seems to have happened in Wells Fargo was it was not just incompetence and understaffing, although it was incompetence and understaffing to a large degree. It was also that they started treating these extension fees as a profit center. Yeah. So there's just one guy. Actually, his name is Tom Swanson, and he's like the Wells Fargo executive in charge of the region, the Los Angeles region that where this bad stuff happened. And by the way, four whistleblowers came out. That's how they found out about this bad uh, bad actions. But this guy, Tom Swanson, basically created an incentive system for managers of these banks, gave them extra bonuses if they could sort of reduce the amount of of late late fees that the bank had to cover. So in other words, they had very direct incentives to have the, the the people working at the banks shift those costs onto the customers. And they did so. And it was really nasty. It was because they intentionally understaffed the, well, what's, them too. What's fascinating is that it's not at all obvious that for all that it's nasty, it was illegal in any way. You lock in a rate for a certain amount of time, and if the and if that a certain amount of time expires, even if it's the bank's own fault, then you have two choices: you can either get the new rate, or you can pay to extend the old rate. And it's really skeevy and nasty for the bank to force you to pay to extend the, the old rate when it's their fault that it that the time has expired. Um, but it's not. I was under the necessary. I I was under the impression that on the bank, like the bank's terms, said that if they messed up, they maybe I maybe I read that wrong. Well, I mean, like but, that but it was but violating the no, bank's own terms. Yeah, yeah. So so if so, that's the whole point. It's up to the bank. So Wells Fargo used to just say it's always the customer who pays, and then some time after the financial crisis, they said, 
well, you know, obviously we've been making a bunch of mistakes, so we'll pay. My and reading of they, it. And then they moved to this kind of hybrid model where they were like, well, if it's our fault, then we'll pay. And if it's not our fault, then you pay. And, and, but ultimately it's up to them. They get to set the policy. I think I, my reading of it is that like the AG office of California could try to make the case. And I'm not a lawyer, but I think they could try to make the case that this was like deceptive and fraudulent act, uh, you know, like right. If, if Wells Fargo says that they will cover the fee in the event that it's their fault, and then they don't, then they've basically broken their promise yes. and, and their practicing deception. And in deception. any case, it's exceptionally bad customer service. And we have examples of people writing to, um, like Michael Hyde, the, the president, the then president of Wells Fargo Home Lending, um, saying, "This is what happened to me. It's not fair. You guys should pay." And nothing happens. And this, is- and, and this is where all of the Slate Money listeners just fall off their chairs. When to, to, to even dream that people might get bad customer service from a high street bank. <laughs> yeah. So coming back to the CFPB, right, and yeah. how like they're doing all their work before they get attacked by the Republicans in Congress. And just a little background here. Ever since it was created, there's been a giant target on this on, on this new agency. It's like, like the top three targets. Yeah, they, by the congressional GOP. Republicans hate it. And one thing they want to do is essentially they want right now its funding stream comes from the Federal Reserve and that insulates it in a lot of ways from the wrath of Congress. What they want to do is if they can't get rid of it entirely, they want to subject it to congressional appropriations, which will then allow them to defund it, make them be able to do less. They won't be able to be as uh, aggressive at a watchdog. So, so, Jordan, can you just backtrack a little bit here? Um, And beyond the sort of, well, they all get lots of campaign donations from banks. Is there any kind of ostensible reason why the congressional Republicans hate the CFPB I just, so I'll say one, one reason is that it's not just banks. It's it's payday lenders. Payday lenders are one of the biggest targets of the CFPB. Yeah. And they have a pretty, and why, and pretty why big lobbying group. And why do congressional Republicans love payday lenders? Because they get money from the okay, lobbying right. group. So now we're just well, going back no, I don't to think, the I don't think it's just money. It's also, it, it, is an ideologi- it is an ideological dedication to this idea of, you know, completely free markets and that regulation gums them up and that, they would be you would have more lending and more access to credit, et cetera, damn the consequences, whatever, you know, buyer beware. Um, if you did not have these watchdogs uh, breathing down banks or payday lenders. Next. So that's a libertarian so, argument. But, yeah, but like what, most of what the CFPDB does is like in, insists that the deal, the terms of a credit card yeah. are actually upfront and clear. Well, right? they also also or mortgage. Republicans will tend to say that when they insist on those additional like, things like additional terms, all these transparency rules that that creates more bureaucracy and makes it harder to operate a community bank or whatever, or, you know, a operate a operate a business. Um, and, and so, yeah, there are there's a lot of ideolo- ideology at play. I don't think it's just campaign tr- contributions. But, I, but it's also particularly disingenuous ideology. I mean, if you force everyone to make it very clear how long it will take you to pay off your credit card if you make the minimum payment every month. Right. That's not that's very easy to comply with. The compliance costs there are simple. The problem, the reason why the banks all hate that is because they want people to pay off the minimum every one month because it maximizes their interest income. Yeah, exactly. Uh, transparency is not the friend of, of banking profits. And beyond that, I think that this example you're bringing up with like the mor- the mortgage problem, right? The, 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 or the, the lost paperwork. Yeah, the lost paperwork. Or also, you know, Wells Fargo, what it was doing, both of these really illustrate the problem with thinking of 
financial services is like any other consumer market because like you don't know if you're getting good service or bad service all the time you don't know what's normal the first time you no, take pr- out a pretty, mortgage. pretty much always you know you're getting bad service. yeah exactly it's hard to this is not it is not easy to shop and compare like you can look at the different rates that show up on lendingtree.com or whatever but you can't necessarily figure out if you're getting screwed by a the, the a loan underwriter credit like, credit card transparency even now is so terrible yeah like, mean, it's very hard it's, to know exactly what the best credit card yeah. for you is yeah it's just like multiple levels it is not a market that without someone enforcing transparency on it someone enforcing some basic decent behavior really lends itself to you know regulation by consumer reports like it just isn't yeah i i gotta say like when I, when trump got elected everybody went through the five stages of grief right and one of the, I, I, i'm still on like stage I've actually, one yeah i was actually it, it has not been a, a a straightforward progression there's been a lot of doubling well back i was gonna say i went like i went through a yet another i when i realized that the cfpb was gonna get defanged i went like triggered another sort of series of grief rounds and it's 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 a it's a big one i i will be sorry when the cfpb is gone Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You see, we're, we're, we're happy giving Kathy the last word for well, the next three episodes. Definitely getting the last word on this one. Um, In fairness, we, she typically does get the last word because my attempts to add something get cut. <laughs> it's not as if there's any effect on the actual episode. <laughs> that's a good point. This is yeah. like, we should let him just do it and then we just yeah, cut and it. And then, like, and then, and then that's Jordan's one of the like, reasons I do it. And then Jordan's like, said the actress to the bishop. And then I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we'll tell you if you want to keep it. The, uh, the, the default Do you, do you not cut. remember the last time we had this conversation? Uh, you were like, why do you do that? I'm like, because I always add a beat so you can cut it if you need to. <laughs> 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 um, I don't know how to do this one. I, I I don't know how to do this. So, um, Kathy, yeah, what's your news? My news is I'm leaving Slate Money. Kathy, <sighs> don't say that. What's your news? <laughs> My news is. I am now a Bloomberg View columnist. As, no, tell me that the evil people at Bloomberg View are forcing you to leave Slate Money, and it's not your fault. Um, well, you can think about it that way. <laughs> Force, forcing her big bags of money. <laughs> they do pay, pay pretty well. They pay be- better than the slate money. I'm, I'm, uh, no comment. Um, wh- the real thing is that, I, you know, I'm just um, trying to start a company. And so it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot of time. And, you know, I just can't do everything. To be honest, like, I was thinking about it, like, sustaining Slate Money and writing two two columns a week. And it just, it was exhausting to think about having that many opinions, like, per week. <laughs> That's a lot of opinions to have, you know? Uh-huh. And it's, it's kind of like a, a mental effort to have that many opinions. Like, I love reading the news, and I can learn information very efficiently and quickly, but... Then you actually, in order, you have to go an extra step and say, "Well, here's what I think," and that's actually a lot of so work. Te- so tell us a little and, uh, bit. Everyone about... Everyone should feel sorry for Jordan because he has to do this like every day, and right? That's, that's literally all I do is form opinions constantly. It's, it's, it's exhausting. exhausting. He's, he's a he's a take machine, people, and and never. <laughs> 
Never let it be said that being a take machine is an easy job. It's hard. No, sometimes it's hard. I sometimes I gray. wish they would just. I, I, my hair is thinning. It's it's rough. You look nice. So you have thick hair. I, <laughs> I started from a very. I started with a lot. You but, started very very thick. Yeah. But yeah. So so obviously, Kathy O'Neill is irreplaceable, and we are all inconsolable. But I do think it's worth, um, just kind of like. Giving Kathy a little bit of, of of props here for you're very clear about like w- you know f- what you want to do professionally, how you want to achieve that, what fits in, what doesn't fit in. You're you're setting aspirations and goals, and you're being realistic, and you're raising a family, and you're doing all of these different things, and you're yeah. balancing your life. And it's I think there's a tendency for a lot of people, including myself, to just sort of say yes to everything. And is, and that's probably maybe not wise. Well, listen, I mean, I think I could sum up what you just said, which is very kind of you, um, by saying I'm really good at quitting things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a professional quitter. And, like, people make fun of me for this. Yeah. Like, I, I quit a 10-year track job, which was dumb, right? And then I quit a job at a hedge fund. You know, who doesn't want that job, right? Then I quit a job as a data scientist, blah, blah, blah. I'm just I, – I, I don't know. I, I'm a very um, – well, yeah, that's, episodic that's sign, person. But it's also a sign of like strength and optimism, as we've mentioned yeah. on this show in the past. That the quit rate yeah. nationally is a, is a sign of economic health. Yeah. The more people quitting their jobs is a sign that things are going well. So maybe yeah. this is a sign that things are going pretty well. For yeah, you things are going great. And I, like my book has had such a great reception, and I'm really, really grateful. But it also, like, it, yeah, I guess like my my life experiences encouraged me to just go ahead and say. The next thing is going to be great too. I, I was going to say though, with you, with you, Kathy, it's not really cyclical. It's not like the economy gets better and you decide to quit more. Like it just you, right. No, you're just like, this yeah. is this is a secular trend. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, I often try to find a job before yeah. quitting the last job. I try to, but that is actually not always true. Right, I quit a job in and I quit the finance job in 2011, and I literally didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I sat around thinking maybe I should work for like City Harvest. Now, is it possible? I guess if you actually do wind up getting a job, you'll even be firing yourself right now that you're self-employed you'll be like i quit this yeah whole self-employed i'm fired thing. i'm gonna I actually I'm gonna go, you know so job. i started this company which is to say like someone i my friend who's a lawyer filed an s-corp so i have a, like a technical legal entity i just got an ein for for tax purposes but i have no clients like it's a, it's a zero revenue co- do, company do you want my company's called um o'neill risk consulting and algorithmic auditing which i call it's orca for short orca ah. And uh, the idea is I would like have clients who have algorithms that they're using that they're worried are illegal or discriminatory. It turns out like nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. I haven't managed to get any. So I'm I'm talking to people inside the insurance industry. I'm talking to people inside the HR so you know, you need, algorithmic you industry. Need a, you need a good lobbyist to create yeah. more regulations so that you can consult about how to deal with those regulations. It's like the worst time ever to start a company that depends on regulations. Yeah. You you did pick an interesting time for that. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really like... I feel like you should be bought by IBM. I feel like this is what... The main thing IBM does these days is it, <laughs> is it buys companies. consultancies, which it can then like sell their services Just to its various the, suite of what, clients. I have given myself like a time a timer. Like but my, the, good new, the good news is that like now, instead of just going to work for IBM, you can be 
aqua hired by IBM, which is a much better thing. What does that mean? It means they buy I mean your water. water. <laughs> <laughs> they, they buy your company. To they hire buy you. your company in order to hire you, and then generally oh. that means you get more money. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But then I have to work for IBM. That yes, yes, it does. I mean, I might have to f- fire myself if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to. They, they, they unfor- there will be a contract clause that says you cannot quit. Like one of the things I've noticed is that, like over time, I've I've had less and less patience for having a boss. Interesting. So I'm really hoping this having a company works th- thing works out, because otherwise I might have to have a boss someday. So so Kathy, since since you are going to be, you're, you're going to be on for two more episodes, yeah. Um, and then you're not going to be on. Yeah. And so what we need from you is is some words of advice okay. for Slate Money hosts, which we can then pass on some of your hard-earned institutional wisdom. What have okay. you learned about dealing the with The most me important Felix? thing is, like, you have to, like, interrupt men a lot. <laughs> <laughs> It's and kinda, it's stand a, firm, you know? <laughs> is that not the advice you guys were looking for? Well, it, 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 it is sort of an interrupt or be interrupted show. Yeah. Like, that is I mean, sort of our in MO. A, in a kind of happy, you know, this is, I'm going to keep talking, so you might as well stop, you know, kind of way. Yeah. But that's important. Um, and and dear listeners, given <laughs> given that Kathy is, is not going to be on this show much longer, we do want to hear from you with all of your ideas about what we should do with this empty chair that yeah. is that is that is not really replaceable but we're going to try and Yeah, I mean look, I that was kind of I was kind of kidding kind of not um kidding not kidding, but the truth is like the the thing that's really great about being a slate money co-host or whatever my job is is you get to learn um you get to sort of like have an excuse to sit down and really think about three things a week, um, three topics a week. You get to sort of say, well, what are the facts here? Like you really get to look some facts up and remember them, which is something that I don't find I do when I'm just reading the news, right? Like you don't like focus very much. I think the best part though of of my three years here, because it's been almost three years. Oh my Jesus Christ. I know. Wow. That's crazy. Has been all the wonderful people that we've met and all the authors, all the the, the guests. I mean, really... I would sum and it up Paul by Ford. saying yeah. we I get was, to meet Paul I was Ford. Gonna, I was going to say like, <laughs> you got what did hug. I accomplish here? I met Paul Ford, <laughs> and I got a hug. And you got a hug. So, and and but, dear listeners, one of the things that that we find in this sort of journalistic world of Slate and Fusion and Slate Money is that when we draw up lists for potential people like that we would like to have on the show and maybe even have as a co-host, those lists tend to be extremely journalist heavy yeah um so if you guys know people who are who don't have sort of professional fetters which would prevent them from having strong opinions on all manner of subjects who do understand business and um, finance who are happy to interrupt me and tell me that i'm full of shit and and they're women and are women because that's obviously we need a woman here yeah yeah, it has to be a woman then do let us know oh and who are also willing to slap out to brooklyn every friday morning yeah Mm mm-hmm um, that this is this is the criteria. If you know an opinionated finance geek in Brooklyn who is female, <laughs> or good. anywhere in the you know subway commuting distance, Kathy comes from the Upper West Side. I do, I do. Which is like as I, far we'll miss these subway rides. That's like as far away as Philadelphia. I, it's like, like coming from <laughs> Los Angeles. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I will miss you guys. We will miss you more than you will miss us because you're going to be living your fabulous life, and we're going to be stuck in the Slate Money Studio. <laughs> you guys are going to be awesome. <laughs> At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. 
behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Okay, so, so it's the numbers round, people. The, the almost... The third from last numbers round that Kathy will ever participate oh my in. Okay. Well, then I should go first because you my number is 3.3 okay. uh, percent. And that's um, that's the, how many women are no longer in the workforce since 1999. We used to have 77% of women in the workforce, and now we have 73.7%. So it's gone down by 3.3%. And um, that's that very 3. different. percentage points. Percentage points. Yes. There you go. For the nerds oh, among you. Oh, my goodness. You. You're so right. Um, and that's in... Stark contrast to most other like countries that we usually compare ourselves to, like the workforce in you know most European countries have gone up since 1999. We've gone down, and there was an interesting article in the New York Times about um about this trend. And the article I thought was mistitled. The article was um, when women quit, they, they do it for different reasons than for men. Um, but inside the article, they said they were talking about how. When uh, women quit, um, they basically quitting because they have to take care of their aging parents because they're taking care of their children and they're sometimes taking care of their husbands. Mm-hmm. And when men quit, they play video games. Yeah. So I think the title should have been like, women don't quit. They just get, stop getting paid. <laughs> yeah. Jordan, what's your number? Uh, 500. Uh, my number is 500. Uh, that's how many years of inequality data or wealth inequality data a economist named Guido Alfani looked at. He tracked stats in six different European countries from 1300 to 1800 um, and then combined that with Thomas Piketty and company's uh, data you know, that spans after that. And basically the big takeaway they found – and. I'm not 100% sold on on this study, but it's interesting, is that like the only things that caused wealth inequality to decrease, made the rich get less rich, were pretty much the Black Death and World War One. Wow. <laughs> like, those were the things that, like, those are, like, the big events. So we're, t- like, looking so, for a plague here? Is yeah, that- so, like, it takes a lot, like, you know, if they're right, like, capitalism's natural machinery really does seem to sort of lend itself uh, to... R is greater than G, as the man said. Yeah. My... My number, I am beholden to my colleague Patrick Hogan for this one, Um, but it's based off this. My number is 5,000. 5,000 is the number of gigabits per second throughput rate that you would get if you hired an Amazon truck. Okay, so this is a thing. When you when because we're we're living in this wonderful world of big data now, and if you have a lot of data and you want to put it in the Amazon cloud, there's the obvious question of how do I physically get all of this data onto the Amazon cloud? And Amazon has an answer for you, which is they will send a truck. And they will <laughs> they will back it up to your loading dock and you can put all of your data onto the truck, up to one hundred petabytes of data on this truck. And then they will drive it off to their cloud storage facility and they will just plug it in. And amazingly... It's become a physical thing. It's a physical thing. Amazingly, (laughs) if you drove a truck with 100 petabytes of data from New York to Los Angeles, like all the way across the country, the effective throughput rate there is 5,000 gigabits a second. That is crazy. That's just... Because there's just so many zeros in a petabyte. 
Damn. So like that really is. It's the It's actually mo- efficient. We're, we're actually like through the looking glass on data here. It just <laughs> <laughs> my, my mind was just like, blown. If you if you want to if you want to like you know communicate data, just put it on a truck. <laughs> It's, it's like the old thing about like the tubes get it, like the internet's tubes like getting clogged because there yeah. wasn't enough room on the truck from Ted Stevenson. It's, it's actually become real. It's it's a real thing. Uh, and you can yeah, but I mean, everyone's saying this is going to be the the plot of Fast and Furious Nine. You know, <laughs> I'll watch that one. <laughs> okay, so that that is on 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 which note. We are going to leave you imagining like what you would do with a hundred petabytes of data on a truck. Um, and we will be back next week. But for now, thank you for listening to Slate Money. Um, thank you to Zach Dynasty and the producer, to the executive producers, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. Email us. The email address is slatemoney at slate.com. We want all of your love for Kathy because she she loves getting love from listeners and I love you guys too and get and give us some ideas for other people especially non-journalists who might be able to fill her shoes and you know if we can't do it then you'll just have to listen to the rest of the Panoply Network which is at itunes.com slash Panoply so we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money like a doodah man once told me you got to pay your hand sometimes the cards ain't worth a dime